Comedy icon Margaret Cho and her podcast from Erios called The Margaret Cho brings you a weekly intimate conversation with an eclectic range of guests from stand-ups to drag queens to rock stars and activists. The conversations are organic, hilarious, and she never shies away from subjects like race, sexuality, or politics. You can listen to The Margaret Cho wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, it is Wednesday, September 16th. This is the podcast version of Q, the CBC radio show. Cynthia Nixon is on the show. Wada Miranda. I, I don't know. I don't, I've never seen Sex in the City, but I've, I've heard that, that people get called a Miranda. And she is literally Miranda. She played Miranda on Sex in the City. She also ran for governor of New York and came pretty close to, to taking it. So we talked to her today about those two roles. And we talked to her also about her new role in the Netflix prequel to One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, the story of Nurse Ratched and how scary she was and why she was scary. So uh, a pretty wide-ranging conversation where we touch on everything from talking to celebrities at airports, uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and misogyny in it, uh, lobotomies, and uh, voting. So yeah, wide-ranging chat. After that, uh, Vanessa Kraft, speaking of a wide-ranging chat, she's the editor-in-chief of the magazine Elle Canada. September, and this is not something I knew before I took on this job. I mean, really, before I took on this job, all I knew about were straw brooms and the hammered dulcimer. But uh, one of the things I've learned doing this job is that um, the September issue of a fashion magazine is the most important one of the year. And this year, Virtually all of the fashion magazines, September issues, feature a black woman on the cover. So it feels like it's a, it's a time of reckoning. It's a time of addressing uh, inequality and inequity in the fashion industry. But will it last? And is it ultimately meaningful? Vanessa Kraft has a lot to say about that. Jesse Wente, who is a longtime CBC contributor, who is now the new president of the Canada Council for the Arts, the chair of the board. We talk about what exactly that does, what the Canada Council actually does, and uh, how he is taking on a role that he is ultimately critical of, which I think is Really interesting. And then finally, Anthony Starr, who plays Homelander in the show called The Boys. I'm playing a simultaneously virtuous and incredibly evil superhero. And maybe that being a reflection of what superheroes would actually be like if they really existed. All right. Show starts now. Oh my, welcome to the show. It is Wednesday when the actor Cynthia Nixon sets out to do something. She really gives it her all. And that energy, that given her allness, has really taken her beyond, well, just acting. If anyone's ever told you, you're such a Miranda, that's the character Cynthia made famous on Sex and the City. Miranda Hobbs, career driven, cynical lawyer who. Spoiler alert, finds love. And if you follow American politics, you last saw Cynthia in the real life role of running for office. For a while, she put acting aside and ran for governor of New York. She didn't win the election, but she didn't slow down either. Cynthia quickly found her way back to acting. Now she stars in Ratchet, a super suspense, excuse me, super suspenseful Netflix drama. That's hard to say, super suspenseful. And if you're thinking, why does that word Ratchet cause an instant spike in my heart rate? It's because it's inspired by the terrifying character Nurse Ratched in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Ladies and gentlemen, you're about to witness history. I present to you the lobotomy. Juvenile distraction, lesbianism, mania. All of these maladies can be reversed. But then aren't we playing God? 
Aren't we saying there's one feeling that's right and another feeling that's wrong? Ooh, that is a bit of the trailer for Ratchet, which is sort of giving us the backstory of Nurse Ratchet from One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Cynthia plays Gwendolyn Briggs, the press secretary for the governor of California, who factors into the story. And Cynthia Nixon joined me to talk about it all. How are you? I'm very well. Thanks so much. When did you see One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest? I mean, I don't remember. I was young. I was maybe um, too young to see it. My dad was a huge Jack Nicholson fan, as am I still. And um, so I remember it being like I I could tell it was a great movie. I was very excited by that uh, ensemble. Um, But it was, of course, you know, deeply disturbing. It was, I think I was around the same age and I remember watching it and even that character, Nurse Ratchet, I was thinking about this the other day that like, I didn't quite understand my dislike of her because I think I wanted to, I wanted to like a nurse and I wanted to like, you know, someone in an authority figure in in a hospital, you know, like she was such a, a compelling character in that film, of course, in the play and in the novel, but like such a, such a compelling and interesting and varied character in so many ways, you know? Yeah, I remember all the excitement about Louise Fletcher's performance and that I remember, of course, when she won the Oscar. And it was a big deal because people, I think, hadn't heard of her, you know, before. And it is it is an amazing performance. And uh, Sarah Paulson was just speaking about this to me the other day. Just such a, a restrained performance. You know, it's 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 opaque is the word that Sarah used. And it's true. You don't know really what's going on with Nurse Ratched. She does, she behaves in such, um, such cruel ways, bordering on sadistic ways, but she hardly ever even um, raises her voice. She doesn't, you know, she doesn't really frown, but she certainly never smiles much either. I was surprised to feel empathy for her watching the show. Yeah, I mean, I think, I, I think we have so many examples of people like, Tony Soprano and Walter White and these these male characters who previously would have been out and out villains, but they are the main the main character in these groundbreaking TV shows. Um, and it makes us consider, you know, this character that if we read about them in the newspaper and their exploits, we would write them off as as evil. But somehow these shows, and I think that's true of Ratchet too, manages to put ourselves in their shoes and makes us if not, well, I think empathize, empathize with them and imagine how we in similar incredible circumstances might have made the same decisions. I don't know what it is about this time, Cynthia. I feel like I'm having more and more conversations these days. Maybe it's the pandemic. Maybe it's the current political situation. But like, I feel like I'm having more and more conversations about empathy and seeing deeply into characters who would who would have at one point be seen as as one, you know, one sided and not multifaceted. You know what I mean by that? I do, I do, but I um I think it it precedes the pandemic in a way. I I I feel like uh when when Ryan Murphy first talked to me about being in the TV show, he he said I want to make a show that is a, a a nurse ratchet prequel but that also pinpoints this particular moment in American history just after World War II in which women uh, were such a big part of the war effort and were given all these opportunities and responsibilities that we had never had before. And we 
carried them out brilliantly. And then as soon as the war ended, we were, to, we were relegated to our old roles again. And so I think there is a whole um, spectrum of really powerful female characters who with thwarted ambition, who have kind of seen the next frontier and tasted the next frontier, but are then the doors clamp shut on them. So I think it's one of the things sort of what women do or choose to do or are pushed to do mm. when they are wanting to attain, you know, levels of power and to please the bosses above them who are male and, um, and how, how we view women with power. I mean, I think, Certainly, One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest is a great performance and she's a great character, but it's obviously also an incredibly misogynistic film. Mm. And, you know, what is the nightmare of the film? The nightmare of the film is there are a bunch of cut up guys, you know, guys who are cut ups and rebels and are vulnerable. And a woman is placed in charge of them. And she's like this castrating, terrifying um, sadist. And I think we just have a lot of, a lot of baggage when it comes to women in positions of power. And I, you know, I think, I think back to the 2016 election and people's, you know, gamut of reactions to Hillary Clinton. And I think, I think all that baggage we carry about women in positions of power is, is, you know, was a big contributing factor to her, uh, losing at least uh, the electoral college, if not the actual election. I should be clear to people listening, you don't play Nurse Ratched. You'd be forgiven at this point of thinking that you do that. I don't, no, no, no. That, that role, that role is played Sarah, by Sarah Paulson. But but you do play a, a character that fits into what we were just talking about. So Gwendolyn Briggs, she's the press secretary for the governor of California. Tell me a little bit about how she fits into that conversation that, that we, we were just having about how you know post-war women in positions of power fit in. Right. So Gwendolyn Briggs is an incredibly accomplished, smart, tenacious woman, um, very ambitious. Um, she, she is the mastermind behind the governor's re-election campaign, um, but she makes very clear that she hopes someday for her, for her that she herself could, would run for office, which as a woman in 1947, you know, was a a, a very ambitious, maybe bordering on unrealistic goal, um, but particularly she's a gay woman. And so for a gay woman, albeit closeted, but as a gay woman, you know, even much, much harder. You had an interesting quote about her I read today. You said, um, the central fact of Gwendolyn is how alone she is. And I'm lucky enough to have never felt that way. Yes, because of course, as a, as a gay woman, as a person who has, you know, been in politics myself and has run for office. People ask me if I identify with this character or if my run for governor, you know, helped me find a way into the character. And I, 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 it didn't, you know, I mean, of course, running for actual elected office is very different than, than playing a character on TV. Um, but I, I, yeah, I feel like um, Gwendolyn is, is, a character the likes of which I don't usually get asked to play. I, I, I'm usually asked to play someone a little more twisted and complicated. And uh, Gwendolyn is so purely who she is and, and of a piece. And she is, I think, the only character in the entire series who is sort of advocating the path of light um, uh, and is comfortable for, with who she is. And I don't know. I I don't often get to be sort of the shining, <laughs> the shining love interest. But 
you know, it's a Ryan Murphy show, so it's you know, it's a little more complicated than that. But uh, but that's that that's who she is. Yeah, you don't have to wear like a druid robe or anything like in this role at all. You exactly. know, you don't you don't yeah, you don't have to do anything. Let's play let's play a clip from uh, uh, the television show. Take a listen to this. Reggie, this, of course, is Secretary Randall Berglund, head of the State Detentions Bureau, and Miss Annie Hardcastle, administrative assistant to the Director of State Finance, Dan Powers. The governor believes this facility can become a shining example, not just of what we can accomplish as a state, but what we're capable of as a nation. And now, the main event. That's my guest, Cynthia Nixon, playing Gwendolyn Briggs on the Netflix series Ratchet. And I'm, I'm happy you brought up that you must get a lot of questions about, like, you know, how did running for office inform this character since she is also a political figure? And I'm not planning on asking you that, but I, I was wondering when you come back to uh, acting after running for governor, are you changed at all as an actor at all? Um, you know, I feel like every experience you have in life changes you as a person and as an actor you you make use of that grab bag of experiences so that you have so yes i would say so but not in a way that i could particularly pinpoint i know what you're saying i i guess i would just think and I, god knows i don't know because I'm, I'm neither a, a public person or a politician or an actor but i would imagine that like becoming well known and becoming a public person for you as opposed to being a role or something like that, being seen as a role, being seen as Miranda, I, I, I assume that would be a little bit different, you know, coming back after that. Yeah, no. No. I mean, no, not really. Not really. You know, as they say in my industry, worth a shot. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I do, I do want to ask you, though, you know, when you were running for office, um, there, there wasn't a pandemic on the go. Are you of the opinion that this pandemic could be a great restart? could be a great restart for, for our priorities. I mean, there's this optimistic feeling that coming out of this thing, we might be able to, to reevaluate power structures. We might be able to reevaluate uh, priorities of governments. Are, are you optimistic about that at all? Or, or has, has running for governor I mean, made you cynical at all about what, that? What has happened with the Black Lives Matter movement during the pandemic, I think and I pray, has been groundbreaking that it has finally broken through. Um, and I do see, I do see some foundational changes being made. And the fact that 20 million people across the United States um, went and protested in solidarity with the Black Lives Matter movement, you know, I thought the, I thought the, the women's march after Trump was elected was was huge, not just in the U.S. but globally. But this is like unlike anything we've ever seen uh, here. It's you know. I think the pandemic has laid bare all of the all of the fissures and all of the haves and have nots that are that are baked into the American system. It's 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 unfortunate that we have to go through this kind of extreme pain and death in order to um, have the scales drop from our eyes. I I, I hope there will be uh, lasting change. But again, you know, I, I, I think the same thing of Donald Trump. Um, I, I hope that his his presidency, which I really hope will be over uh, next year, um, will have taught us um, just really how 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 deeply white supremacy is still a part of this country and and how far we have to go to eradicate it. But again, did we have to really live through Donald four years of Donald Trump in order to teach us that? I, I guess we did. I wish there was a 
there was an easier way. Uh, you know, this, these are things that are on, on, on our mind in Canada as well. If you're just tuning in, my guest is Cynthia Nixon, who stars in the new Netflix series, uh, Ratchet. is streaming now on Netflix. It, the idea of change and progress brings to mind some things I was thinking about while I was watching this show. And, you know, uh, as I played in the trailer just then, you know, some of the procedures that um, psychiatric patients go through are very hard to watch, Cynthia. They're very troubling to watch, including, you know, a lobotomy to, to cure lesbianism, as they say in the trailer or, or in, in, the, in the television show, or uh, homosexuality. What was it like for you to go back to just even just a few decades ago when some of these procedures were considered not just appropriate, but cutting edge? Yes. I mean, I think that we, we're obviously doing better than we did in 1947, but we still have a long way to go when it comes to uh, really understanding, much less treating mental illness and addiction. Um, I still think we, we still have a, a tendency to view mental illness and addiction as a, as a moral failing rather than a, than a medical condition. And I think one of the big themes of Ratched is if there is a part of you that either you don't like or society has told you is wrong, trying to deny it or, or stamp it out or even cut it out um, is not going to work. That thing is going to bounce back, you know, bigger and stronger and more determined than before. And so I think that that's, uh, you know, one of the key themes is as, as human beings, we have to look at all the different, sometimes disjointed parts of ourselves and accept them and even embrace them. Even if there are some things that we would like to change, we have to acknowledge them and accept them first before we go about trying to change them. Just a, I know we only have a couple of minutes left. I did want to ask you that. I'm always very interested in how people relate to the roles that they that they uh, are, are known for. And you know, I've had conversations with actors, and I, I'll often ask them. You know, when you're going through the airport and someone calls out to you by your by your character's name, how do you react? And I've had, honest to God, you would think this wouldn't have happened, but I've had actors say to me, "Oh God, I hate it. I hate it. I won't respond. I won't turn my head. I, I, I'm not that person. Leave me alone." I've had other actors say, oh, you know, it's fine. I don't really mind. And if other, other actors say, I love it. You have an interesting one because you are so closely associated with Miranda from Sex and the City. You know, it was even, you know, it even came up when you were running for governor. How, how are you with it? How are you with it when you're walking through JFK and someone calls out Miranda? Well, I mean, I suppose like anybody else, it kind of depends partly on the day that I'm, <laughs> yeah, if, that I'm in. If you're late for the airport, if you're running to catch a flight, it might be a yeah, bit different. Yeah, I mean, in a, in a funny way, I mean, it used to be that more people used to call me Miranda and they didn't know my name is Cynthia. You know, now more people, when they recognize me, know my name is Cynthia. But in a funny way, it's sort of to have somebody who doesn't know me call me Cynthia seems a little intimate or a little personal. Something. Whereas, whereas Miranda, it's kind of, I, it sort of feels polite in a way. Like they're not intruding on my real life. They kind of want to want to see my character, which sort of feels like a, I don't know, a buffer zone, if you will. And you're able to be there. You, you'll, you'll, you'll do it. I mean, not, not that you're going to act as Miranda. It but like... totally depends on the day. It really, really does. It really does. Wednesdays and Thursdays, you're all about it. <laughs> Uh, this is this is uh, this will seem like a broad question to close on, but I, I actually mean it to be quite specific. We are keeping a close eye on the uh, American federal election. I want to know when you open up the paper in the morning, or when you turn on the radio in the morning, or when you watch the television. Is there one particular thing you're keeping an eye on as voters get ready to head to the polls? One particular thing 
that you're keeping an eye on? It's so hard to know with the post office under attack. And I mean, the Russians, I mean, it's, it's endless. Um, I, I, I guess the thing that I'm keeping an eye on, if you will, or at least keeping in my heart is that I hope that every American remembers that their vote counts and that, uh, you know, even an ocean is made up of, you know, a drop, you know, billions of droplets of water. And so I think about all the people who didn't vote um, last time or voted for a protest candidate because they think their vote didn't matter. I just really hope that we all understand how very important it is for us to show up because uh, it, if, if there was ever not a time to, to stay home or stay on the sidelines, this is it. And I guess that includes Americans living in Canada. Absolutely. Cynthia Nixon, what a joy to talk to you and thank you so much for your time. And I'll, 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 I'll keep an eye on the calendar before I call out to you in the airport. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> thank you. That's a, another, um, that's a, a Cynthia Nixon starring in Ratchet, streaming now on Netflix. I don't know what happened to me there. You'll also be able to catch her in the new HBO historical drama, The Gilded Age. That'll be out next year. Take a listen to this. Just listen to the drums there. That is a 10-year-old drum prodigy named Nandy Bushell destroying a cover of Dead End Friends by the band These Crooked Vultures. That cover is part of a drumming competition between her and Dave Grohl. It all got started last month when Nandy challenged the Foo Fighters front person and former Nirvana drummer to a drum-off over Twitter. Dave Grohl accepted defeat in round one, saying, Okay, Nandy Bushell, you win round one, but it ain't over yet. And yesterday, round two kicked off with Grohl posting this video to Twitter. You win round one, but I got something special for you, something you've never heard before, because I'm about to write this off the top of my head for you. That is Steve Grohl with an original song he wrote for 10-year-old drum prodigy Nandy Bushell as part of their drum off. Isn't that so sweet? Nandy hasn't posted a song in response yet, but she did tweet, I can't believe Dave Grohl actually wrote a song about me. This is so, so, so epic. I think it's the best song ever in the world. Ever. Yeah, she, she, got, a, she got a good point about that. We'll post Dave Grohl's video up on our Twitter at CBC Radio Q. Oh, what a sweet, sweet story. My name is Tom Power. Do you still get that fresh start feeling every September? That urge to go out and buy clean notebooks and white out, no matter how many years it's been since you headed back to school? I mean, about 400 in my case, as I just used the words uh, white out. But September still kind of feels like a time for change and reinvention. And maybe that's why fall fashion is such a big deal. September is the biggest and most important month of the year for fashion magazines. It's a time of new trends, but it's also a time for editors to think about how they want to reflect their world back to their readers. This year, as the fashion industry confronts its issues with diversity and inequity, that question is more urgent than ever. 
Right now, magazines like Vogue, InStyle, Harper's Bazaar, and Elle all feature black women on their covers. And they're also exploring racism and social justice in their pages. So what should readers make of this? Is it a permanent, meaningful shift in the industry? Vanessa Kraft is here to discuss. She's the editor-in-chief of Elle Canada, and she joins me from Toronto. Hi, Vanessa. How are you? I'm great. Thank you. How are you? I'm not too bad. I guess I should say Happy Fashion New Year. Sure, let's do it. Yay, <laughs> yeah, I'll get the champagne. Posting. I'll get the champagne a little later. Um, <laughs> you run Elle Canada, the magazine. Your September cover features the Canadian musician Jesse Reyes. Now, this is the third year in a row that you put a, a person of color on a September cover. But did it feel different this year? Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, at Elle, we consistently look for women who are leading in their fields or embody a tide of change. So obviously, Jesse Reyes, who is speaking up actively about the need for better representation in the music industry is perfect for that. But what is really different is the the backdrop, which is these massive global events, you know, the civil rights movement, climate crisis, et cetera. And that combined with this huge societal shift around accountability and this imperative that we need to be standing for something, it's, it is different. The backdrop is different. And every decision that we make right now takes on new meaning. You can tell that difference in your editor's letter this month. You said this year, September feels less like a call for a glow up and more like an ear piercing klaxon for an urgent and complete reset. What did you mean by that? I think it feels inauthentic to um, gloss over what's happening and just be like, hey, guys, these new jackets will solve all of your problems. You know, when people are losing their jobs because of COVID and there's a reckoning happening uh, around the fashion industry and our consumption practices and the messages we push, I think the impact that the media has on these messages is um, also something that needs a bit of a reset. So as a society, we need to take this kind of traditional time of reinvention and the excitement that comes with this quote, quote, new year and apply it to more than just having a cute outfit. Although I am still a fan of having a cute outfit, <laughs> just state for the record. There's no shame in having a cute outfit, I understand. <laughs> but you mentioned that reset there. Are you seeing that reset in other September issues of fashion magazines? You know, In Style, Vogue, Harper's Bazaar, they're overwhelmingly featuring black women on the covers. There's a lot of um, uh, content about anti-black racism within the pages. What do you make of that? Mm, I think that... You know, magazines are responsible for obviously reflecting trends and shifts that are happening, um, but we're also responsible for leading shifts and trends. So uh, there is a bit of an element of reactivity here with what we're seeing, but every bit of representation matters no matter how you find it or how you get to to it. As long as it isn't tokenism, I think that this is a, a hugely positive change. I'm interested to hear you say that there that it's also about leading the the, the foray mm-hmm. here because I mean the fashion industry itself is trying to reckon with its own systemic racism, like the actual, you know, the fashion industry people mm-hmm. making clothes. As mm-hmm. a magazine that covers fashion, does that limit how diverse or inclusive your magazine or any fashion magazine can be when you're kind of taking your cues from the industry itself? Absolutely. There's so many links in this chain. You know, there's the casting agents and who they deem as the beauty ideal, for example, for who they push to be on the runway or who gets what models get those big money campaigns and the design houses that make items that maybe have links to racism or they appropriate culture. There's advertiser pressure that can come onto editors to feature one brand over the other. And and that's not even touching on size diversity, where the samples we get to shoot are so tiny and they're size zero that it limits the women that we can even photograph within the clothing. Let's talk about Vogue for a second, kind of one of the big 
fashion magazines, if not sort of the biggest fashion magazine. This month it featured the black Canadian fashion designer Aurora James. Why is that so significant? Oh, it's huge. Um, And it's such an amazing accomplishment for for Aurora, who is an incredible designer. Um, Previously, you know, if you look at the history of Vogue, uh, Vogue US, the, the level of achievement that one needed, if you were a, if you were a black woman, if to make the cover of Vogue, your level of achievement is so significant compared to the white peers. Like you were talking, oh, you can be on the cover of Vogue if you're Oprah Winfrey, mm. if you're Michelle Obama, mm. casual, uh, Serena Williams, you know. Right. So to have a fashion designer like Aurora, who is an activist first, frankly, and a designer second, it's beautiful and it's powerful. And uh, it's a really exciting statement for them to make. I mean, Aurora is on the cover, but she sort of also factors into the last part of the conversation we were having because she was on our show to talk about the 15% pledge, which is mm-hmm. – uh, I have it here. It's an initiative that asks fashion companies to commit to hiring and featuring 15% BIPOC creators and brands. Uh, American Vogue did take the 15% pledge. Do you think this might mean some meaningful change? It's definitely a step in the right direction. You know, economic support and viability is crucial for any major lasting change. As our hiring practices, you know, we need to see uh, stuff happening with executive level hires and and the people who can make those big decisions. So the fact that Vogue is supporting this 15% pledge, which has also been taken on by retailers like Sephora, things like that, it does set the stage for uh, over time for there to be a significant impact from that. I'm speaking with the editor-in-chief of Elle Canada, Vanessa Kraft, about diversity and representation in fashion magazines this month. You've been a, a fashion and beauty editor now for, what, about about a decade, over a decade? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. How, 10 years. Let's go with 10. Let's just say 10 years. We don't have to exaggerate. We don't have to go any more than that. How? <laughs> <laughs> one minute for one minute. <laughs> <laughs> the price is the price is right rules. How hard has it been throughout your career to do this kind of advocacy for BIPOC representation in magazines? Oh, well, I mean, as you can imagine, I've had many interesting experiences in the past. Things are better now. But I, you know, I remember once there was a shoot and I was pushing for diversity within the shoot. And I was told, we have diversity. We have a redhead. Like, what's the problem here? Um, and, you know, we're always we always talk about uh, within, you know, editorship about being told that black people don't sell magazines. And I think what's been most disheartening in the past has been that I spend so much time, so much of my time making others comfortable around diversity and the conversation of inclusion rather than doing my actual job, you know. So definitely it is better now. Having support makes a huge difference. And I do have that. But uh, it has been uh, a challenge. Yes. Did it ever start to get easier? Yeah, it definitely did. You know what happens is if you somehow make if you make a business case for something, well, strangely, people will listen, you know, and if it's good for business to open up your audience, which it very clearly is not just good for humanity and creativity and storytelling and sharing. It's very, very good for people to see themselves represented. And then you'll have a whole new audience who will come and support your product. And then everybody wins. I mean, but it's not unlike the CBC, right? Like, I mean, there's so much focus, uh, you know, on uh, what we actually put out over the air. But what's, what happens behind the scenes, what happens to our workplace cultures and how supportive our workplace cultures are is, is as important, perhaps doesn't get talked about as much. How about fashion magazines? I mean, how do they need to adjust their work culture to meet this moment? 
We need to have um, a variety of changes behind the scenes. We need we need different storytellers, which of course makes for a richer, more impactful experience for readers. Um, you know, the, spe- the specific in a story can be very global about w- with what we share about our lives. But my biggest concern and, and, and where I see a need for changes around economic diversity, there's an entry barrier for those who can't afford to intern to get their foot in the door and things like that. So magazines need to find a way to open the door and get more people behind the scenes. It makes for a better magazine. What environment do you hope to create for your employees? I, we have a very open dialogue. It's a safe place uh, at L to challenge, to question, to speak freely. And I do push pretty high standards for my team. I have high expectations uh, and we have a very clear vision. So we all know what we're working towards. But it is definitely an environment where it's safe to call out the boss if you don't think something is working. I, w- I was about to say, oh, it's uh, you're trying to make a better environment when they come to work. But I, I realize I just mean over Zoom probably these yeah, days. Yeah, Zoom. <laughs> Yeah, unfortunately so. In this month's issue of Elle Canada, you say that you were so inspired by a photo shoot of the black model Veronica Webb in the October 1990 issue of Elle that you cut your hair and you bought a sweater to try and emulate her. When young BIPOC folks are looking at the September 2020 issue of Elle Canada, they see Jesse Reyes and they read the magazine. What, what, What do you hope that they get out of it? I hope they, of course, get some good old fashioned uh, inspiration in whatever that form that may take. But I think the message that I hope that they take is we see you and you are part of the conversation. uh, And most importantly, that you're unstoppable. What do you hope to see after the September issue? What do you hope to see coming out of the following and going forward? Uh, I just hope to see a a little bit of a return to fun as well. Like I think we can have big conversations around activism and, and, and huge change. Well, we can also have a sense of escape and a bit of relief from the monotony and craziness of the, the news cycle. So I hope that everything continues with pushing diversity and inclusion and challenging the rules of what have been, has been done before. Vanessa, it's so nice to talk to you. Thank you. I'm just realizing that your your work Zoom calls are probably the best dressed work Zoom calls in all of Canada. <laughs> everyone else is wearing pajamas across up. the country and everyone there is wearing a, a, a smoking jacket or something like that. <laughs> a smoking jacket. <laughs> I don't know about that. Yeah, I'm 104 yes. years old and that's what I think fashion is, but I understand what you mean. All good. All, all, right. all good. Nice to talk to you. Come back again soon. Thank you. Take care. That is my guest, Vanessa Kraft. She is the editor-in-chief of L Canada. Sound Off by Critical Frequency, hosted by longtime music journalist Katie Henriksen, brings you in-depth interviews with musicians whose work defies categorization. Katie has licensed full songs from her guests, so listening to the show feels like listening to great music with the backstory woven in between songs. You can listen to Sound Off wherever you get your podcasts. David Tennant does a podcast with from something else is back for another season. David sits down virtually with the biggest names in entertainment, including Dame Judi Dench, Jim Parsons, Elizabeth Moss, and more. You'll get an inside look at these stars' lives with revealing conversations, surprising stories, and of course, lots of laughs. New episodes of David Tennant Does a Podcast With, available every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts.
You might be feeling a whole new appreciation this year for the arts in this country. Now that the pandemic has prevented you from accessing them in the same way, whether it's your kid's Monday night painting class, the outdoor summer music festival you never miss, or grabbing a blanket and seeing Shakespeare in the park, the arts are probably woven through your days in ways you might not have fully appreciated until now, until you can't actually interact with them. The Canada Council for the Arts has a long history and mandate to support and sustain the arts in this country. And last month, they announced that Jesse Wente is their new chair. Jesse's been a film critic and a contributor to the CBC for a long time. If you live in Toronto, you wouldn't hear him a lot on the radio show Metro Morning. He's also been a constant advocate for Indigenous rights and representation within the arts. He joins me now from his home in Toronto. Hey, Jesse, how are you? I'm well, Tom. How are you? I'm not too bad. How's your TIFF going? It's, it's a bit strange. I know you're, you're a, a film guy. Is it a bit strange to be watching them all at home? Um, I wish I could say I've been watching them all. I think I've seen maybe three movies. Um, so unfortunately, my, my current uh, career, uh, watching movies is increasingly difficult. Ah, yeah, I know. I know exactly what you mean. Um, I want to get to your new role in just a second, but I think we should just like maybe lay out the Canada Council for people, for people who are unfamiliar with the Canada Council for the Arts, but who have a sort of a general idea of what it is. What is its primary function? So its primary function is to support arts and culture in Canada, and that's both largely through its granting uh, program. It was founded in 1957, and so it supports both our individual artists as well as arts uh, and cultural organizations. It's part of uh, the uh, Department of Heritage. It's a crown corporation, and it um, distributes a little bit more than $300 million a year currently to artists and arts organizations right across uh, Canada. So as the chair of the institution, what's your responsibility? Well, I get to run the board meetings, <laughs> which is always fun. Um, I mean, the primary responsibility for any uh, board member or board chair when it comes to a crown corporation is to ensure the um, correct uh, dispersal of public funds, which is, is what the Canada Council does, and oversight of the governance and um, of the organizations as well as its financials. Uh, and, and, you know, functionally, yeah, uh, chairing the, the meeting is um, very central to the, the job. I think the chair also has an opportunity to um, not individually set the agenda, but at least have a say in how the agenda is set and what, what sort of vision is, is uh, set for council. And that, um, you know, that is certainly true as we're entering a new strategic planning uh, process now. You know, the position is new for you, but I know you've been on the board for several years now. And you've also, as I mentioned, also been a pretty prominent advocate for Indigenous arts, for its artists. Do you see that as part of your role now as, as chair of the board? Well, I mean, I see that as part of my role in life. Uh, so I, I tend to take that into whatever spaces or whatever uh, I'm, I'm doing. That has really been foundational to much of my professional and, frankly, my, my personal career. I'm not sure I can separate uh, the two. But of course, the chair of the Canada Council for the Arts is also there um, to advocate for all artists and arts and culture, both, you know, to the government and, 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 and within the system, but also um, within the council itself. And so, uh, for sure, of course, uh, that's what I bring. But, I, you know, uh, I, when I, whether I was a, a columnist in Metro Morning covering film or when I used to be a columnist for this very show, uh, you know, I didn't just cover Indigenous arts. I, I, I have a broad spectrum of 
of um, knowledge and connections and relationships. So I look forward to bringing all of that to this position. You know, you say that your ultimate objective as chair of the council is harm reduction. And as you mentioned, mm-hmm. not just with respect to the indigenous community, but all communities that have suffered under colonialism. Can you tell me, can you tell me more about that? Yeah. Well, Tommy, you know, as I've begun to really reflect on all of the things that I've done and the work that I'm doing both at the Canada Council, but also my day job as executive director of the Indigenous Screen Office, um, you know, I view, I guess what I view is these sorts of positions and these sorts of this sort of work as harm reduction, because we're trying to reduce the harm, quite frankly, that capitalism uh, produces in our cultures. And uh, I could point to, especially these days, a myriad examples of the harm that capitalism uh, ultimately does do um, to so many of us. And I think, you know, unless you're in a position to actually be trying to undo capitalism, which is a huge task Mm -hmm. and something that as a society i think we will ultimately have to get to but um if you're not doing that everything else where you're trying to make things better is ultimately harm reduction and so i would view the canada council the indigenous screen office all of these as attempts to make um life work art creation um more uh livable more Mm -hmm. tenable for a broader group of people and that amounts ultimately uh, to harm reduction. So yeah, I, I do want to see that at the council. I want to see that in our society, in our culture, in our governments, everywhere, because I think we underestimate just how much harm is being done regularly by the systems that underpin the structures that we've built up to support us. Um, what does that look like in practice? Like, what is? Can you give me an example of what a harm reduction in this case might look like in, in practice in this job? Sure. Uh, I mean, I think harm reduction uh, could look at making sure that you're equitably uh, dispersing the funds, uh, that you are you are not succumbing to bias of any kind, uh, that you are and and equitably means both across gender lines, racial lines, geographic, regional, all of, all of that to make sure that you're you're doing it the most equitable way uh, possible. It make, means making sure that the folks that you're funding are also safe spaces, Mm. uh, that the council is a safe space, both for its staff, its board members, and as well as the people that engage in it and for the, the audiences, um, you know, at the ISO, it looks like arguing for narrative sovereignty for indigenous people, allowing us to be able to tell our own stories and to be control of the stories that are told about us. And that is a goal. It is ultimately harm reduction. It's, it's a way for us to live and work in this sector in a better way than the way we have been, but it's not ultimately going to lead us to true sovereignty without a whole other things happening. So I think there's a myriad of actions uh, that we could take. And I would say, Tom, this isn't, you know, while, while my focus is on the arts, cause that's my expertise. Mm. I think leaders all across all sorts of sectors actually could be doing the exact same work because it's, it's not like the harm is just vectored in the art, arts and culture sector. Yeah. The harm is being done right across all the time. And, and we need to get to a place where our society understands that causing harm, even for the benefit of others, isn't worth it. You know, you mentioned that, you know, you have to make sure you're free of bias. The people on the, on the board are free of bias. It's such a powerful position. I'm sure that's on your mind. Have you been thinking about blind spots you might have when it comes to advocating for artists who make up this industry? Always. 
every every moment and i try to surround myself with people um uh i wouldn't necessarily call them blind spots but who who have more experience than i do in those those areas um and who who know better than i do i i think it's very important as a leader to acknowledge that you don't know everything and that your job is actually to seek out the people who do know and whether it's me even ha- choosing to take on this role I absolutely had a circle of people around me to help advise me even in that position to make sure that I would would do it in the the best way possible uh, for me. I, I, you know, I'm a big believer that we need to live in right relations with each other, with the, 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 the land, with our animal uh, cousins, with um, our governments, our systems. And I want to make sure that in my work, I'm always trying to be in right relations. And so... Uh, absolutely. And, and I also appreciate when people come to me where they, where I may not know and, and bring it forth as well. I think that is extremely useful because we, we sometimes don't even know um, what we don't know. And I, I admit that as well. So I'm absolutely doing that work every single day, mm-hmm. all the time. And I look forward to continuing. Jesse, um, the Canada Council for the Arts, as we mentioned, is a crown corporation. You know, you've been critical of crown corporations and institutions, not just throughout your career, sometimes during this interview. So I guess just what, what, what made you want to, what made you want to take on the job? You know, it's, it's, uh, it was a really tough choice because um, I did not imagine as a First Nations person that I would ever want to lead a crown corporation. And I guess what really convinced me was that, as, as you mentioned, I've been on the board for uh, three years. I've worked with the, the board that exists now. I've worked with the CEO, the, the executive leadership. I've been extremely impressed about how they work and the efforts that they are making, that they acknowledge that they have uh, a change that, that it needs to be made. And they are actively working towards that. You know, it's only in the last five years uh, that the council has a, an indigenous specific stream. But in that five years, it's gone from funding $6.3 million worth of activity to the expectation by the end of 2021 is 18.9, so three times as much. To me, that suggests this is an organization that's actually doing the work. And that gave me the confidence that I could work with this organization, that there was there was a way for me to increase my engagement um, from the board by taking on the... Uh, the chair role. And, you know, I do think it is ultimately important that First Nations, Métis, and Inuit peoples begin to take leadership roles, even within colonial structures, Mm. so we can do exactly what I'm talking about, which is reduce the harm that these things do. Because as you say, I'm critical not just of crown corporations, I'm critical of the entire concept of the crown. In In the last minute we have left, what are your expectations for yourself? I mean, this is a five-year position, limited options for renewal. What are you, what are you setting up for yourself here? Uh, I've really set, taken that five years as my window of opportunity to bring about, uh, at least start, if not complete, the change that I think we need and that I think many people understand that we now need. And so I look forward to, to making those efforts. We've got a strategic plan coming up. Um, the CEO's term will be ending in a couple of years. So those are some big milestones. Uh, and I, I just set myself up to do the best I can for my community and for all communities in Canada and for this land that I love so much. Jesse Wente, thanks so much for your time. Miigwech, Tom. 
Uh, Jesse Winty is the new chair of the Canada Council for the Arts. He's also a longtime film and culture critic. He joined me from his home in Toronto. I'm Tom Power. A world without crime, with liberty and justice for all. That's within our reach, thanks to the 200-plus superheroes in the Vought family. We see a bright future ahead where there is a Vought hero in every town. That's a promo for a fictional stable of superheroes. Their mission? Protecting the people of the United States from evil. Sounds good, right? But these superheroes are owned and controlled by a corporation called Vought International, and their goal has nothing to do with protecting U.S. citizens. Their goal really is to use these superheroes as pawns in their quest for corporate and political domination. So who's going to save the world from Vought? Well, that's where the boys come in. People love superheroes. They swoop out of the sky and save the day. People love that cozy feeling that superheroes give them. Soups lose hundreds of people each year to collateral damage. I've got the boys together. Join us. To do what? Spank the bastards. Yes. And then. The Boys is also the title of this Amazon Prime superhero series. It's kind of like Justice League meets Guardians of the Galaxy meets House of Cards. And one of the people you meet in the show is this guy called Homelander. And the corporation has this super-powered, super-corrupted supergroup called The Seven. And he's the sort of villainous leader of the group. Anthony Starr is the guy who plays him. You might remember Anthony from the crime action series Banshee from a few years back. Season two of The Boys just premiered earlier this month. And it's a joy to have Anthony Starr with me now. How are you? Hey, how are you, man? I'm great. It's nice to talk to you. I should say I called him a, a Homelander, a megalomaniac, but that's not really how he's seen by everybody, <laughs> right? Yeah, it depends. I mean, it, it would not by himself, maybe. I think everyone <laughs> else can, 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 can lean into that a little more. <laughs> but what a, what a joyful part this is must be for you as an actor because you get to play this. I should be clear, Homelander is sort of this superhero, Captain America style, like altruistic hero, but then he's also kind of secretly evil. So in this role, you kind of have to do two things at once. I, I, I imagine that's a real gift for an actor. Yeah, uh, it's incredible. It's it's um, it, it's honestly it's the gift that uh, that keeps on giving in so many different ways, you know. And, and I, I'm so happy that we've had a positive uh, response thus far because we get to keep doing it. I mean, I just I just haven't had this much fun in a, in a role. Uh, I, I'm possibly ever, you know. It's just uh, being being someone uh, basically a narcissistic sociopath is just so much fun, and you get to do so much crazy stuff. So yeah, it's a ball. So let's talk a little bit about the plot. I just want to run it down for people who haven't seen the show yet. The show is set in a fictional world. Superheroes are big business. Homelander and his teammates, The Seven, are owned by a company called Vought International. Um, How does the fact that they're owned by a corporation show up in the superheroes and and what they do? Well, I I mean – you know, I mean, it, it, it's like uh, there was there was a, a, a movie ages ago called uh, Mystery Men, uh, in which Greg Kinnear played a, a, a superhero, basically the all American superhero, sponsored by Pepsi and all these other products. And it's, it's it sort of leans into that idea that 
there's this big corporate uh, Goliath uh, in 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 the form of Vought that basically is just you know it's just pleasing shareholders and um, they're, they're they're branding superheroes as a product you know as any 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 other corporation does it's it's really it's just about money it's just it, it's it's symptomatic of uh well some symbolic and reflective of what's going on in the world today and the way that uh big conglomerate corporations have kind of are, are dominating the marketplace and pretty much taken over um most facets of, of the way we live so uh for example you know in in the show it's the the superheroes of the of the product and um we're out there doing all these um wonderful deeds to and uh, putting on the public face and then behind that uh, as is the case with many a celebrity and many a politician, there's a very dark side going on. So um, basically, it's you know, it's a, it's a good versus evil uh, show, but everything is inverted. I, I want to play a clip that I think really illustrates that uh, what, what you're talking about there. So this is Homelander, uh, your character, addressing reporters and the public at the scene of a plane crash, a terrorist plane crash. We have Homelander and Queen Maeve on the scene. Do you have a comment? If they let us into the military, then this will never happen again. That is my solemn promise to you. Talk to your congressmen. Talk to them. They'll listen to the people. And together, together we will make sure that this never happens to our great nation ever again. God bless you. God bless America. We hear you, Homelander. And I hear you, brother. I hear you. That is a clip from The Boys starring my guest, Anthony Starr. Anthony, like that is one of the scariest parts of the show to me. And um, I I want you to run down why, because there's obviously it sounds like you're giving a speech about you feel so sad for this tragedy. Tell me a little bit about like Homelander's M.O. in that moment. Uh, in that moment, he's there's been a, there's been a hijacking over the uh, I think it was over the Pacific. I can't quite remember. Anyway, there was a hijacking. Uh, Queen Maeve, which is uh, the, another superhero in, in the Seven, and myself, Homelander, have busted onto this plane, killed the hijackers, and then accidentally, Homelander lasered the controls of the plane, and so the plane is actually going has gone down. Uh, and we made the choice before prior to the, the plane going down, well, I made the choice that we had to leave all the passengers on board. So I think there was, you know, 240-odd people on board, and they all died. Uh, so this whole speech is a spin on Homelander's part, basically to try and salvage, uh, pun intended, salvage something from the wreckage uh, and and spin it politically. Because Homelander's big MO underlying all this, or one of them anyway, in his quest to become... A, a god or seen as a god uh part one is to get superheroes uh installed as a, as a centerpiece of the military um so he, he basically is making a speech to play on people's, uh, patriotism and, and their fear to try and um accelerate the the superheroes entry into the into the army it's it's so scary to see him turn like that and how effective it really is. And the show's title, The Boys, is a reference to its protagonists, these civilians uh, played by Carl Urban and, and Jack Quaid, among others. Uh, they're hell-bent on taking down Homelander and the Vought Corporation. And, you know, you mentioned earlier it's sort of the battle of good versus evil, but it's but it's reversed. But it's even even maybe – 
it strikes me as even more complicated than that because, you know, superhero shows tend Ooh. to build each episode around one particular battle that the good guys inevitably end up winning. But even if it is the boys who are these these vigilantes or whether it's the the seven who are these superheroes, it can be really hard to tell who you're rooting for sometimes on the show. And sometimes you're rooting for both sides and sometimes you're rooting for neither of them. How do you see it? Agreed, yeah. I think there's a – let's call it a spectrum. There's There's certain characters that are – very obviously and unambiguously uh, bad, uh, like myself, you know, I am the villain um, from the audience perspective. And there's another character on season two that's come in that makes Homelander look good almost, uh, played by Aya Cash. It's a character called um, Stormfront, who's very, very clearly uh, a baddie and not a goodie. Um, but then you've got characters like Carl, uh, uh, sorry, Butcher, uh, played by Carl Urban, a fellow Kiwi, uh, who is, he's ostensibly, he's the good guy, but he's actually technically a, uh, he's a serial killer. Um, he's murdered people. You know, he does the wrong things for the right reasons. Um, so he would fall somewhere, you know, quite far away from good guy or bad guy, somewhere in the middle where, you know, he he faces these, moral dilemmas and and puts other people around him specifically the boys into these moral dilemmas and then you've got other people who are clearly good like starlight that is on the other end of the spectrum so it's really um it is a, it's a pretty checkered sort of sort of game that we're playing and it, i mean and the board shifts the board shifts quite a bit between characters but also within the worlds of each individual you know it's quite a Homelander, for example, might do the wrong thing for for the right reasons, uh, but it, it but it, it's just for him. Everyone else would see it as, yeah, that's clearly the wrong thing to do, and clearly uh, it's a bad act. But then it is, in his mind, it's uh, it's it's for the right reasons with his twisted sense of loyalty. So um, it is a very uh, it's a pretty complex um, moral environment that we we dapple around in. If you're just tuning in, my guest is Anthony Starr. He plays the megalomaniac, villainous, but altruistic superhero Homelander on the hit series The Boys on, on Amazon Prime. I've, I've heard you talk about how it was important for you to have a say when it came to fleshing out Homelander, this character, the show's storylines. Where do we see your vision for Homelander in the second season? Well, I, I actually I, I tend to stay out of the uh, the, the storylining. That's nothing to do with me. Um, but when it comes to scenes and um, detailing and and underlying emotional and uh, uh, emotional and spirit, uh, you know the, the the nuts and bolts of the character and how that might affect scenes. We got a great boss, Eric Kripke, who's very uh, collaborative and wants wants input. So. Uh, I tend to chip in more there. So as far as where the character is going to go, you know what? I I leave that up to the very skilled uh, bunch of writers that we've got. And um, the only thing I know about Homelander in season three, which we've already been picked up for, which is great, uh, is uh, Eric came up to me and, and I asked where we could possibly go with this character. And he said, Homelander season three, two words, homicidal maniac. So... <laughs> I, I don't know exactly where, where that's going to go or what ex specifics of what that means. But judging by, you know, I mean, I thought we'd already done that. Um, so if that's not Eric up to now, if what we've been doing isn't Eric's idea of homicidal maniac, I am 
I'm very excited to find out and slightly terrified to find out what homicidal maniac does mean to him. What 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 conversations were you having when you took on this show? I mean, did they talk to you? Did they talk to you about like, hey, this might be what superheroes would actually be like in this sort of corporate controlled world that we sort of live in? Yeah, I mean, there's there's obviously there's um, there's a lot of parallels that are being drawn to to celebrity and and politicians and the corporate environment, the, the corporate economic, a uh, uh, corporate environment and the. Uh, and, and and our popular culture as well is just so geared up around celebrity and image and uh, the falsehood that often goes along uh, with those images and uh, and the realities of or maybe a, maybe a slightly more realistic take uh, on what absolute power would absolutely do. You know, I think I, I, all the superhero stuff is is so it it's so correct it, and it has to be because you know we've got these characters whose 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 moral compass sits at true north and and they they can't deviate from that uh whereas we are really straying into into different areas uh that are much more complex and much more reflective and and honest uh, uh, about what's really going on in the world uh and i think you know i mean the timing of this show was uh was pretty surreal uh i don't think it could have been made 10 years ago i think the time is right for a show like this um that said the timing of season two was was just utterly surreal uh because it was written you know there's a lot of a lot of social issues going on in america at the moment um which is good that they these things these these awful things are being uh they're having the light shone on them but it just so happens that some of those issues collide with the material that was dreamed up and and uh and written for season two about a year and a half ago so it's it's been a very um, intense time for the show to come out because it is so on the nose, reflective of what's going on in the states at the moment, and, and certain what thematically. And uh, it's been really interesting seeing uh, people's response to that. It's really funny to hear you say that because you know the, the it is this perfect satire of American culture, as you say. And but the show is shot in Canada. Yeah. You can see Toronto in it a lot. You're from New Zealand, as you mentioned earlier. Do you think you might see America differently? As someone who works in that system, but but isn't from there. Yeah, well, I think what happens uh, with that, you know, I've had a chance to think about that a bit. I think, you know, Americans are raised with a very strong sense of patriotism, and and uh, they really are. It's it's drummed into them uh, from a very early age that you know the the flag is wonderful and the president is great and. God is good, and then there's a there's a set of core beliefs and values that Americans are raised with. Uh, not everyone, obviously, falls in falls uh, un, under the uh, the spell of those ideals, um, but but generally um, they they tend to. Whereas maybe maybe an outsider like myself can be uh, a little more objective when when looking at some of some of what's going on in America. Uh, we're not blinded by any sort of. Uh, we're not indoctrinated by any sort of set of values, which is which the country um, sort of puts put, puts on them and, uh, and 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 demands that they adhere to. Uh, so I think, but at the same time, I think it's I, I, you know I mean the show is def- has definitely got a, a, a cynical um, element to it, but. Um, I also think there's a lot of hope in the show as well as reflected by some of the better characters. Um, 
you know, it's it's not all doom and gloom. And I think it's important that that cynicism isn't isn't too great because it is easy to look in at, it's, it's, you know, the grass is greener on the other side of the fence, right? It's always easy to look at someone else's life or what, what else is, or someone else's country and what's going on and make, make judgments and, uh, and tell them what they're doing wrong and what they're doing right. But I don't, and I don't think it's specifically America. I think America probably drives some of these themes. Um, the themes I'm talking about, the, the celebrity culture and the, the money and the politics and the, corporations but it's not it's not exclusive to america and i don't and i think there there is ultimately a hopeful message in the show of good triumphing over evil i, I think in time that will uh that will come out can you watch a i should i don't know how to say this can you watch a regular superhero movie now without rolling your eyes at it funnily enough i i literally because i'm stuck in i'm quarantining in a hotel in um in in uh, Bulgaria at the moment, and uh, I I've been in here for about four days. So uh, I, I actually I watched Avengers today, and all I could think was, "Wow, this is really great." Uh, I I I do I do sort of look at it and go, "Wow." I'm, I'm, I mean, I loved I love the show that I'm doing, and I, I really enjoy it. Um, but without those without those movies, without the, the the culture, the the pop culture, and the the comic book culture that is that is already out there and, and it's so big in the world and so prevalent without that when we don't exist so you know I'm, I'm very affectionate towards those things uh but i i do love being in a show that isn't a slave to those very very politically correct masters it is uh it is yeah i, I wonder if you're going to run into one of them on an elevator sometime <laughs> i'm sure i will and you know what i love all that stuff i mean i, I grew up with this stuff as well maybe not grew up with it but um well yeah to a certain extent not the modern films i'm too long in the tooth for that but but we all grew up with these these superheroes and these i mean they've been around forever so uh i i love what they're doing i love what those uh what, what marvel's doing dc what they're doing um i think perhaps there's it, I, I, perhaps and I, I i you know i realize what i'm saying is 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 stupid and nobody wants COVID around but maybe uh, maybe a fringe benefit, if there is any benefit and there's not to this lockup situation, is that maybe the, a little gap in superhero content coming out is a good thing for those franchises that people will be hungry for them again. Mm-hmm. Um, so, because there is a lot of content out there, you know, I think it's, uh, it's, uh, I think, and maybe that's why people are enjoying the show is, is that it's, it's a fresh take on, uh, you know, a pretty, a, a pretty well worn pair of shoes well listen stay safe uh take care of yourself and thanks a lot for joining us today thank you so much man great to talk to you anthony Starr plays homelander on the hit amazon prime superhero series the boys season two is airing now that is it for the show today tomorrow on the show regina king talks about her new film one night in miami which imagines a conversation between martin luther king malcolm x Sam Cooke and the NFLer Jim Brown. That conversation actually did take place after Ali won the championship, but we don't know what they said. This film imagines what they might have talked about. All right. See you then. Later on. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.